0: much, Pastor. Let me invite you to open your Bible tonight to the book of Ruth in chapter number two. The book of Ruth chapter number two. I'd like to begin reading tonight from Ruth chapter two and verse number two. And what a wonderful day to be in God's house with God's people. I you enjoy the good fellowship. I enjoy the good heart you have for each other and for the Lord and uh, the wonderful song. It's just uh, great to hear people sing. The parts are beautiful and and uh, the music ought to honor the Lord. You know, much of the, uh, uh, I find it interesting, in modern houses of religion, they've done two things with the music. First, they, they seem to get a little phrase and repeat it over and over and over again. They just, like they're trying to talk themselves into believing something. And you know, the other thing I've noticed is that the, the, the music that we sing is so different than most, not all, but most of the things that are written today. There's a very small range of notes. It's almost hypnotic. And not only the words just keep repeating. There, the, 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 there's a very little, very, very tiny range. There, you, you know, when you start singing about the glory of God, you, you kind of gotta. Well, like like pastors talk about, you kind of gotta hit a few high notes. I mean, you gotta get, you gotta get up on a mountaintop, or you know, step up on a ladder, or do something. There, there's some notes I couldn't hit with even a ladder, but. But you understand, there's, there's some glory to the music. It, it, it ought to rise, it ought to get soft, it ought to go somewhere. But modern music is just that kind of hipness, hip, hypnotic attitude about it, like we're trying to talk people into believing that Jesus is Lord. Well, the Bible tells us He is to be magnified and glorified and exalted because He doesn't need me to say He is Lord. He is Lord with or without my tongue. And my tongue can only exalt Him in His mighty act of creation and sing the mighty power of God or I can choose to serve myself. But at the end of the day when it's all said and done with or without me, He is still the Lord sitting upon the throne. And uh, my, just such a joy, I say all that, to say what a blessing to hear uh, the music, hear you sing, it's beautiful, and to hear the instruments as well. Always appreciate the the hard labor and the work that goes into honoring the Lord every time I come. Thank you so much for playing and singing to exalt our Savior. You have your Bible tonight to the book of Ruth in chapter 2, and when you come to the end of Ruth chapter 1, well, there couldn't be a greater contrast, could there? Of course, we have Naomi, the hometown girl. Back in chapter 1, verse 20, the last we check with her, uh, she's on a little pity party, feeling sorry for herself. Call me not Naomi, call me Mara. The name Mara means to be bitter. For the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. And at the end of Ruth chapter 1, there is Naomi feeling sorry for herself, blaming God for the condition of her life. And what a glaring contrast that is with Ruth. Because in Ruth chapter 2, verse Verse number two, uh, the Bible says, and Ruth, and you may have missed this, she is the Moabitess. Ruth, the Moabitess, said unto Naomi, let me now go to the field and glean ears of corn, after him in whose sight I shall find grace. And she said to her, go, my daughter. And she went and came and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and her hap was to light on the part of the field belonging unto Boaz, who was of the kindred of Elimelech. My Father, I pray tonight as we open the Bible that you do a great work in our hearts and in our lives. And Lord, we live in a world that long has abandoned the Bible and forsaken the God of the Bible. But, but Lord, your people on a Sunday night have gathered together to honor Christ, to sing his praises, to lift up the mighty word of God. And so I pray that tonight you would bless, you would encourage, you would make your people strong. If someone in this building has never called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, what a wonderful night to be saved. But Lord, there's a work humans could do and it won't last. But if the Spirit of God takes the Word of God, we can see permanent, eternal change. So we ask for your help tonight. In the great name of Jesus we come. Amen. It certainly is the story of Ruth's life, isn't it? In Ruth chapter 2, she says, let me go. She just got something about that word go. Of course, in Ruth chapter 1, verse number 16, when she was standing at the crossroads, she said it for the ages, and me not to leave thee or return from following after me. For whither thou goest, I will go. Where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. Where thou diest, will I die, and there will I be buried." The Lord do so to me and more also if what but death part thee and me. It's a classic moment in the word of God. I mean, it's kind of like that Moses moment when he stood before the people and told them to decide if they wanted a God made out of gold or the God of the Bible. It kind of rises to that moment of Joshua when he said, Choose ye this day whom ye will serve. It rises to that level of the three Hebrew boys. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of thy hand O king but if not be it known unto thee that we will not serve thy gods nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up it is just one of those classic moments in the Bible where Ruth stands at the crossroads and says there is no future there is nothing I could expect it would appear that every day of my life I'm going to be hungry and, and searching for a morsel of food but she says pretty much like Job though he slay me yet will I trust in him. I will maintain my way before him. There is Ruth saying my life for the will of God. I go where God wants. I live where God wants. His people are now my people and the God of Israel is my God until I die. It is a perfect moment in the Bible where this lady says my life for the will of God. You know, there's something awfully special about that. You may get the idea. I really like that verse. You know, Ruth 1:16 and 17, if you're here under the age of 20, would be a great verse for you to memorize. Two great verses. If you're here over the age of 20, that would be two great verses to memorize. And... If you are 20, that would be two great verses to memorize. It's just a wonderful moment in the Bible. There's so much to learn. There's so much that we understand. It is the story of somebody simply saying, I am going to live my life for the good and the acceptable and the perfect will of God. And you know, when somebody just gives their life to the will of God, it's an amazing thing. I remember a few years ago preaching a revival meeting in a little place called Macomb, Mississippi. It was Sunday morning. And the pastor had invited a gentleman, a missionary, to come and give his testimony. It was just a little different. The gentleman was an 80-year-old man, and I don't know if I've ever heard anything before or since quite like that story. 80-year-old man stood up and said, "I I lived my life in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. He said, when I was 60 years old, I retired, had a comfortable income, retired from a good job, and and he thought, you know, I'll just stick my feet in the lake, kind of get in a boat, do some fishing, some hunting, kind of what you do in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. But he said, at the age of 60, I had just retired, uh, and what do you know, in a missions conference, God called me to go to the mission field. Well, now, I can't find any age restriction in the Bible. I can't find, well, if you're not at camp when you're 18 years old throwing a stick in the fire, forget the rest of your life. I'm not sure where that verse is. And and sure enough, he was 60 years old. He said, God called me to the mission field. Now, that was one thing, but what happened next I wasn't expecting. He said, God called this 60-year-old man in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, to go spend the next 20 years of his life in Siberia. I got to tell you, there's going to the mission field and then there's going to Siberia. That's something else. And and I got to tell you, we sat there listening to this guy and it was incredible. He started telling stories of taking chainsaws and cutting holes in the ice so they could baptize people. And I got to tell you, by the time he was done, I was wanting to go to Siberia for a little while anyway. And and I got to tell you, what a testimony. And you can only walk away saying, what a story. An 80 year old guy on the mission field serving the Lord in Siberia. there's just something awfully special about people who live for the good and the acceptable and the perfect will of God. A few summers ago I was preaching in Papua New Guinea and after the service one night they kind of had exactly what you'd expect. And, and Papua New Guinea, the thatched roof, the wood benches, the floor, all that. And, and the building was up on stilts and, and I walked out the back, went down the stairs. They had this big grass area. Everybody would fellowship there. It got a little hot and sticky underneath that thatched roof, I guess. So the service was done. It was dark at night. And my missionary friend, he said, I want to introduce you to somebody. And uh, there was a pastor. His name was Pastor Levi. My missionary friend said, Pastor Levi pastors a church called Rapture Baptist Church. Never heard of that before, but I like that name works for me. And, and we started up a conversation. I said, well, brother Levi, tell me, where's your church? He said, well, do you see that mountain over there? Now I got to tell you folks, uh, I looked and I didn't see a mountain over there, but 36 years of traveling all over the place kind of taught me one man's mountain is another man's hill. So I'm not going to talk about what a mountain is in Tennessee, but I, I just came last week from Washington State and Portland, Oregon, so out there they got, shall I say, a little different definition of mountain than you all have here, which would be different than we have in Arizona. So one man's mountain is another man's hill. But I said, I don't see a mountain. Oh, oh, that mountain, that hill over there, you mean? I said, I- is your church up there? He said, no. But if you were to climb on the top of that mountain, from there you could see another mountain. I said, oh, Brother Levi, is your church on that second mountain? He said, no. But if you were to climb up that second mountain, you'd see a third mountain. I'm tired of asking him, so I just didn't say anything. He said, halfway up that third mountain, there's a little village called Betoy. He said, that's where God's allowed us to start a church. And you know, that old timer looked at me, he said, the Lord has allowed us from that little mountain church to go further to, I guess, other mountains, presumably, and start two more churches. I got to tell you, there's just something incredibly special about people who live their life for the good and the acceptable and the perfect will of God. A few years ago in 2015, I had the privilege to preach in Beijing, China. There I met a young man, and we'll just call him Pastor Jimmy tonight, and uh, my, what a smile he had, what a testimony he had for Christ. One night after the service, we were talking, and he explained how he pastored a church, and, you know, he just named a city in China, which they probably kind of all sound alike to most of us. And, and uh, I mean, i never forget preaching the, the time before, a place called Kunming, China. And uh, they said, oh, that's only like the 19th or 20th largest city in China. Well, It may be the 20th largest city in China, but it had more people than New York City. I mean, it's just stunning. People absolutely everywhere. He told me where he was preaching, Brother Jimmy did, and I said, Brother Jimmy, how'd you get saved? He told me he was a college student, and he was studying for a medical career in medical school, and he said, that's when the Lord saved me, and he called me to preach. And you know, I knew I had a choice to make, but I said, I'd rather have Jesus than a medical career, and, and he turned his back on medicine, and he went to that city, and there the Lord blessed him. He said, you know, the church began to grow. We had 270 adults, plus boys and girls, and... And uh, that's when the problem started. And he said, my, we just had the authorities come and break up our service a number of times. He said, five times I've been in jail for preaching the gospel. He said, the last time they broke in on a Sunday morning, they not only arrested me, they arrested my wife. And, you know, I was kind of waiting for him to ask how many times I've gone to jail for preaching. And I'm kind of glad he didn't. That would be a big zero. But you know, as we were talking and he described what it was like to have the communist authorities break through, he he said, well, finally we got the message. So what we did is we took our church and divided it by five, and now in homes and small little halls around the city, our one church has turned into six or seven churches, and and, uh, we're just seeing the Lord bless in a wonderful way. Brother Jimmy told me they have a little Christian school, and, and if you know anything about Asia and that part of the world, education is everything. He said, we have a little Christian school. And he said, if parents want to enroll their children in our school, I explain to them that we are not accredited. And what that means is that when you graduate from our school, you will never, ever, ever have your children take a college entrance exam. I mean, that is a real problem in a place like China. He said, if you enroll your children in our school, it is for one reason. It is because you don't want your children taught Chinese propaganda, communist propaganda. You want them to learn the word of God. Brother Jimmy, he said, we've got 50 students in our school. You know, there's just something incredibly special about somebody living for the good and the acceptable and the perfect will of God. And it doesn't matter if it's a little lady standing at the crossroads somewheres between Moab and Bethlehem, Judah. It doesn't matter if it's an old guy down in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. It doesn't matter if it's somebody out in Papua New Guinea that doesn't know the difference between a mountain and a hill. And it doesn't even matter if it's somebody out in the middle of China surrounded by teeming millions when people say, my life for the will of God. It is incredibly special. In a few weeks now, Lord willing, I'll be preaching in Juan Caio, Peru. And, and uh, there's a young pastor, a wonderful guy named Christian Soto. I mean, what a testimony, what a smile, what a heart he has for the will of God and, and the work of God. And I remember sitting at lunch one time, I was there in the past, and Christian, how, what's your story? How'd you get saved? And he told me that he grew up in the slums of Lima. And, you know, we talk about poverty in America, please. The slums of a city in a third world country. Well, that is a description that we can't even imagine in America. He said, I grew up in a slums. somehow, some way, I graduated at the top of my class in high school. I had a free scholarship to go to the university. I graduated with honors. And this is what a boy growing up in the slums of Lima said. On the table in front of me, there sat a contract from the Peruvian government all I had to do was take my pen and sign my name I would be paid a 1.6 million Peruvian dollar salary a year now I know that could be a lot or a little so back in the time that would have been a half a million US dollars 22-year-old man all I got to do is sign my name do what I love as an engineer I'll be paid a half a million US dollars a year I'll pull my family right out of poverty but you know about that time the Lord had dealt in his heart called him to preach and he turned it all down the pressure was enormous from his family and friends and I said well what happened the day you made that choice and you know what he said He said, I was reading my Bible, that's how that works, in John chapter number one. And he said, I came across that text where the Bible tells us the the men from Jerusalem, the authorities had come, and they wanted to know how and why and when and where John the Baptist was doing what he did. And of course, he gave that great testimony. I'm just a voice. I'm just a voice of one crying in the wilderness. My buddy said, when I read those words, they smote my heart. And I knew that for the rest of my life, I didn't want to be an engineer. For the rest of my life, I didn't want to work for the Peruvian government. For the rest of my life, I just wanted to be a voice for my Savior, the Lord Jesus. There is just something incredibly special about people who say, my life for the will of God. And you and I read Ruth chapter 1, and we watch these ladies at the crossroads, and we see Orpah with her M&Ms or Skittles, and we watch Ruth just the opposite, with conviction and courage and compassion, say, it doesn't matter where I go. It doesn't matter the price I pay. It doesn't matter where or how I die. Just my life for the will of God. We are certainly at a high moment at the Word of God. But when you come to Ruth chapter 2, verse number 2, uh, well, could I put it like this? That mountaintop experience of Ruth 1.16 runs dead end into a brick wall called an empty stomach. And sure enough, she wakes up the next day and says, let me now go to the field and glean ears of corn. Translated, she's saying, I'm hungry and I need a bite to eat. Let me now, and notice in your Bible, the word's interesting. It doesn't say, let me go to the fields. Let me go to the field. In a place like Bethlehem, and understand, Bethlehem wasn't Jerusalem. It wasn't the biggest city in the country. However, it wasn't a a podunk little country village either. Uh, Bethlehem had city walls. It had city gates. It was a pretty big place. What they would do in a city like Bethlehem is that outside of the city wall, there would be one huge, I mean huge, massive field. That's why it's singular. Not let me go to the fields, let me go to the field. And in that one singular massive field, it would be divided usually into square or rectangular plots. And so a family would have a plot here, and and it could be a jumbled patchwork. You might have one there and one over there, but, but you understand there was one massive field for the whole city. Inside that field, families had their own plots of ground. Now here is what the law required. The law required that when a family had their plot of ground inside the massive field, they were required to round off the corners. It's where this phrase comes from. And that way, poor people, or in this case, widows, they could go out to the field and, and, and when somebody had gone and gone reap their field, they would go ahead and just have those corners set aside for the poor. Sometimes they would leave some scraps behind as well in the regular field. But, but rounding off the corners, that was done for the poor, it was done for the widows. I, I do find it fascinating that in the Bible, well, there's nowhere in the Bible where God tells somebody to stand on a street corner with a sign, will work for food. That's just not in the Bible. I mean, you're talking about the poorest of the poor. You're talking about a destitute widow, but God expected them to go out to the field and God expected them to work and to labor because labor and work are incredibly important for humans. So the fields would be rounded off and and that's why you'll read in verse number two the word glean. Go in the field, singular, and glean after the reapers. The reapers would go through first and they would get the harvest and what was left behind were the gleanings. So there is a difference between gleaning and reaping. At the end of the day you still got the same sweat on your brow, but you know the reapers went first and they took the harvest and the gleaners came by to the rounded corners and even the poorest of the poor had something to eat. Well, you talk about the poorest of the poor. In verse number 2, Ruth the Moabitess said unto Naomi, Let me now go into the field and glean ears ears of corn, and notice what she thinks she needs. After him in whose sight I shall find grace. Boy, did she ever need grace. She's walking out of the house that morning, kind of shaking her head, saying, Lord, I'm hungry. And, and you know, for all the glory of Ruth 1.16, and then for all the preaching material of that verse. And i got to tell you, a guy like me could park there a long, long time, believe me. There is so much glory in Ruth 1.16. The truth of the matter is, in chapter 2, verse number 2, she's got a hungry stomach. And she says, I need a bite to eat. And she knows what she's getting into. There is a massive field. And look, the law said you had to round off the corners. But that doesn't mean they like to do it. I mean, even with rounded corners, we're cutting into profits. And you know what American people think about losing profits. Well, some of you understand what Israel Israelis think about losing profits. Not exactly excited about that. And you're not going to be popular if you're going out in the field to glean after the reapers. But you know, to compound the whole thing is there's that little thing, Ruth the Moabitess. The last thing they want is anybody taking their crop But worse than anybody would be a Moabitess. I mean there was an inbred hatred for anything Moabitess. I mean from the moment she shows up in town, you know it by the way she talks, you know it by the way she acts. There is a very racial component here. And when the Bible constantly reminds us that this is the story of Ruth the Moabitess it is the constant reminder there's nobody showing her any favors today. So when she's walking out of the house she's praying and She's saying, Lord, I, what I need today is I just need somebody to show grace. I mean, she knows what she's in for. She knows how helpless and hopeless and destitute she is. She knows that I need somebody that's going to show grace to me. I need some favor that's not deserved. No, I need somebody that's going to not just look past the uh, look past the fact that I'm poor and look past the fact that I'm a widow, but I need somebody that's going to be able to look past the fact that I'm a Moabitess there weren't too many people willing to do that and so off she goes to the field then it's kind of tragic isn't it because what we learn in the end of the chapter is that, number one, going to the field for anybody is very dangerous. Number two, going to the field as a woman alone was an incredibly dangerous thing. And yet, yet Naomi won't get out of bed and help her. Naomi doesn't even warn her. She does later. And without a word of warning, without a word of encouragement, basically Naomi is sitting around the house pouting and feeling sorry for herself. And Ruth, the Moabitess, says, I need a bite to eat. And she walks out of the house to a very dangerous scenario. She walks out of the house all by herself. Everything is against her. I mean to tell you when you come to verse 3 and it says she went and came and gleaned in the field after the reapers. If you just stop right there at the word reapers for a second and be reminded one more time that the, that the odds of life, the circumstances of life couldn't be stacked against her anymore. She is all by herself. Naomi's not there to help. She is a Moabitess. We are reminded of that again and again. She is a widow. She is hungry. She had been married for 10 years and they didn't have any children. She doesn't have a husband. There are no youngsters to take care of her. We are talking about somebody who is helpless and hopeless. We are talking about somebody who is destitute. We are talking about somebody that has nothing going for her. She walks out of the house looking up to heaven like a pathetic little child. Oh, what I need today is somebody that will show grace to me. Halfway through Ruth chapter 2 and verse number 3, we are looking at a helpless, hopeless lady who's got nothing going for her. I say nothing. However, there is just one thing going for her. Just one thing. You will read that at the end of verse number 3, where the Bible puts it like this, and as always, God gets the perfect word, doesn't he? It says, and her hap was to light on the part of the field belonging unto Boaz, who was of the kindred of Elimelech. And her hap. What a word. You know, that word is found only one other time in the Bible. It's the book of Ecclesiastes 2, verse number 14. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walketh in darkness. And I myself perceive that one event happeneth to them all. Now, this is almost like it's a unique word. It's almost like God reserved this word. He said, we'll use it one more time. But it's such a special word. It's such a unique word. And it couldn't be used in a better place. Because as this woman walks out of the house and you picture in your mind, she is hopeless and helpless helpless and hungry. She doesn't know where to go. She says, I'm just going out to this massive field and and nobody could care less. No one wants to help. She knows what she is walking into, a scenario where she is going to be ignored best and despised most likely. And she walks out of that field, walks out towards that field thinking there is nobody with me. But the Bible tells us that God is about ready to make some things happen. That little word hap is all of a sudden a hinge in the story of Ruth. That little word hap, do you know what the world calls that? The world has a word for this. We don't use this word. But the world has a word for hap. They call it luck. And what the world calls luck, you and I know is really God making it happen. And that's exactly what is about to take place. Because what we have in Ruth chapter 1 is a lady standing at the crossroads saying no matter what it costs, no matter what it takes, no matter where I die, I am living my life for the will of God. And what do you know? Heaven has taken notice. And now the God of heaven has watched this Moabitess stand at the crossroads. The God of heaven has looked at the conviction in her life. The God of heaven has watched this lady, so to speak, raise her hand and make an oath and a promise that her life is for the will of God and now it is time in Ruth chapter 2 for God to make some things happen I heard an old preacher put it like this. He said in the book of Ruth, you might say Ruth did her part. You might say Boaz did his part, but now God is going to do his part. And Ruth chapter 2 is the story of a wonderful heavenly father who has watched this woman stand at the crossroads of conviction and make a choice for the ages. And now it's time for the Lord to intervene and say, I'm going to make some impossible things happen for Ruth. This is such a great chapter. Because for somebody, maybe in this building tonight, maybe somebody that perhaps is somewhere in roost condition, a widow, maybe somebody has said, I have lived my life for the will of God. I have given the Lord maybe many years teaching a Sunday school class, many years faithful and serving the Lord in a local church. And now somebody comes up in years and and now there's different burdens and there's different medical issues and, and there's different battles to face. And you know, somebody says, I have invested my life in serving the Lord in a local church. And now I've got some needs and I've got some health issues and I've got some financial pressures and I've got some burdens. What do I do now? And the story of Ruth is for you and me to know that when we do our part in Ruth 1.16 and we give our lives for the will of God, that there's a God in heaven that says, don't you worry, I make sure that the ravens get their food. Don't you worry, I make sure that the grass of the field is clothed better than Solomon. And if I can take care of the ravens and if I can take care of the grass in the field, well, then God says, you better be sure and you better know I can take care of a Ruth. And I can take care of anybody that lives for the will of God. In other words, show me a teenager, show me a young person, show me a college student, show me somebody who's willing to get on their knees and join Ruth and say, my life for the will of God. I don't know where it's going to take and I don't know what it costs. I don't know the story it's going to bring, but I am going to live my life until I die for the good and the acceptable and the perfect will of God. And the whole story is that heaven smiles on a man like that. Heaven smiles on a lady like that. And now you can almost watch the God of heaven stand forward and God saying everybody else out of the way. It is time for me to take care of Ruth. It is time for me to do what nobody else can do. It is time for God to make it happen. The world would be ready to say Ruth is going to get awfully lucky now. God shakes his head and says luck's got nothing to do with it. God is going to make it happen. Would you notice in your Bible four things that God made happen? Number one, it just happened. It just happened. It just happened to be the right season. Go back, if you would, to the end of chapter 1 in verse 22. And and I know when we read a chapter like Ruth 1, it's awfully easy to come to a phrase like this and yawn a little bit and say, let's keep going. But, but notice the last thing it says, they came to Bethlehem in the beginning of barley harvest. Barley harvest, the beginning would be somewhere in late April or early May. And, and there's a reason that matters. The reason it matters is because the big guy, I'm referring to Boaz now, he would only go out into the field when it was harvest harvest time. When the crops were small and growing, there was nothing to worry about. But when the harvest was coming in, well, that's when the, the thieves would show up. That's when some battles would be there to fought. And a man at his field, he'd be there day and night during harvest time because that's when he had to keep an eye on his crops and protect his property. In other words, you and I read the end of verse 22 and kind of yawn a little bit, but that really matters. Because if Ruth had showed up in Bethlehem a week earlier, it would have been a week too soon. If she had showed up a week later, it would have been a week too late. Nope, when Ruth shows up in Bethlehem, it just happens to be the beginning of barley harvest. It just happens to be the right season. You know, and there's one of these things to take it or leave it now, but the Jewish historians claim that Boaz in his previous marriage had a large family. Yet at the time we read in Ruth chapter 2, they say that all of his family had died. In fact they say they being the historians now they say the day that Ruth and Naomi came to Jerusalem the reason the ladies were there is because they were at the funeral of Boaz's wife. Now, look, I I don't know about that. And, 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 you know, sometimes history could be legendary and sometimes legends can really be legends. I, I mean, I get that. But, you know, history or not, I do know one thing. It happened to be the right season. It just happened to be the right time of the year. And when the Bible tells us they came in barley harvest, we are reminded there is nothing unimportant in the Word of God. It just happens to be the right season. Notice number two, it just happened. It just happened to be the right place and she went, verse number three says, and came and gleaned in the field after the reapers. You know, there's a story here we're going to have to wait for heaven to hear. But It's going to be fabulous to hear Ruth tell this story, and, and I can hear Ruth say, yeah, I went out there, and it's just this huge, massive field, I um, mean, as far as the eye could see, and your know, families had plots I had no idea where I was going. You can hear Ruth say, you know, I was ready to go over here, and, and could I glean in the field after the reapers, and you can hear, oh, the boss is going come back later, and, and you know, over here, not a boss is gone on a business trip, come back Tuesday. You can imagine the stuff she must have heard, and yet somehow some way, not that field, not that field she just happens to land on the right field. She just happens to land on the right place. I mean, what an accident that was. And you and I would shake our head and say, well, she really got lucky there, but no, God put her in the right place. You see, we start thinking that God's going to do all this in the beginning, but there is a point, isn't there? When God started dealing in Miss Ruth's life, it was after Ruth stood at the crossroads and said I surrender to the will of God and now when Ruth said I don't know how and I don't know where but whatever it costs I am living for the will of God now here's God making sure it's the right season and for all the jumbled patchwork, for all of the family plots where she could have ended up she just happens to land in the right field, the field that belonged unto Boaz. It just happens to be the right season. It just happens to be the right place. But how about this, number three, it just happens to be the right person. And her happens to light on the part of the field belonging unto Boaz. And notice he was of the kindred of Elimelech. Now, remember a verse earlier when Ruth is walking out of the house that day. Hey, Ruth, what do you need? And you can almost see her laugh and say, well, I need somebody that's going to show me grace. This is why we trust the Lord, because we think we know what we need, but we don't. The Lord knows what we need better than we know what we need. Because if you could interview Ruth, she'd tell you, I need somebody to show grace. And I wonder if heaven didn't laugh at that. I can almost see the Lord look down with a smile on his face saying, Lady, you don't even know what you need. You think you need a man that's going to show you grace, but you need a whole lot more than that. Because she, what she never could have imagined walking out of the house that day is that she needed a man that wasn't just a gracious man. She needs a man who's not just a compassionate man that's going to show mercy to a Moabite. But you know what she needed that I suspect she never thought of? She needed a relative of her dead father-in-law. I don't suppose that ever went through her mind, but it certainly went through the Lord's mind. So God said, not that field, not that field, not that field. Right here, this is the one. And God put her in the right spot at the right time, and what do you know, it just happened to be a plot of ground that was not only owned by a very godly man, by a very good man, it was not only owned by a a, a man with a great reputation and testimony. He happened to be Boaz, who was of the same family as Elimelech. Boaz of the Ephrathites well, what do you know the Lord knew exactly what she needed and this is where Hollywood gets it all wrong Because you know how old and of course Hollywood gets it wrong. They never get it right. Yeah. How old Boaz was? The guy had to be about hundred and ten years old You can't get from having Rahab your mother to having Obed your son unless you're about a buck ten In fact, those old historians who shall remain nameless say that the very night Obed was conceived is the night this Boaz died. Whatever he was, somewhere between 100 and 110, And Ruth 3, verse number 10, he was amazed when he said to Ruth, thou followest not young men. I mean, she was not robbing a cradle on this guy. I know Hollywood's got Boaz as being this handsome, young, eligible bachelor, but the Bible never says that. It'd be an absolute impossibility He was an old, old man. And while this kind of changes the Hollywood version of things, it certainly does tell us there's another great story in the Bible. Because the story of Ruth and Boaz having a child, well, that's kind of like the story of Abraham and Sarah. It's kind of going to bring us to the story of Zacharias and his wife. This is an amazing moment in the Bible when an old, old man is going to father a child. And and by the way, while we're on the subject, you know, there is nowhere in the Bible where it ever even remotely suggests that Ruth is beautiful. Nowhere. Now I know I know all the graph stories. Got this beautiful young maiden. I know the Hollywood movies. Got this beautiful actress. But the Bible never says that. And could I say that that's not just an insignificant thing? Because there are 15 count them 15 times in the Old Testament where if a woman's beauty was a part of the story, God tells us. So there are 15 times where either a woman like Rachel said to be beautiful or or maybe like Job's daughters are beautiful. But if it's part of the story, God goes out of his way to tell us. So what I'm saying is that if Ruth had all this happened because she was this beautiful Moabitess lady, the Bible would tell us it always did. The fact that it doesn't say that, does that mean she was an ugly lady? Well, you know, I don't know what she looked like, but ne- neither do the flannel graph story companies. And what I do know is that if that was the part of the story, it would be here. By the way, do you know who else is not is not said to be beautiful? Potiphar's wife. When it comes to Joseph, uh, uh, you know, we kind of been led to believe that she's just a seductive, beautiful woman, but the Bible never says that. And if she were You kind of get the idea in the Old Testament, God would have told us so. No, no, there's no reason to believe that Ruth got anything done, that that all of these things happened because she was controlling, because she was gorgeous, for all the reasons that Hollywood gives. Nope, there's something a whole lot bigger than that here. This is not the story of this beautiful human love as much as it is the story of a lady who loves the Lord and God blesses two people that love the will of God. What an amazing thing. I, I, she didn't even know. I just need somebody that's going to have grace. I just need somebody that's going to put some food in my stomach. And you can hear the Lord laugh and say, you need a lot more than that, little lady. And the next thing you know, it's just the right season. It's just the right place. It's it's just, just the right guy. And how about this? In verse number four, it just happens to be the right time. And, and that's what you get from this word, behold. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. You know, the word be- behold, it's, it's an Old Testament word. It just means... It's kind of get the idea laughing it's like who would have guessed that and it's kind of like well the last thing you ever suspect is going to happen now or or it's kind of like gomer Pyle used to say shazam you know i've never thought that one coming oh the last thing you'd expect who do you suppose shows up but the guy who's of the family of Elimelech. like i mean the last thing you'd ever expect here comes boaz out to the field at just the right time at just the right season at just the right place And what you and I are reminded is that when some young person says, can I live my life for the will of God, you give your life to the Lord and you say my life for the will of God and there is a God who takes care of things every single step of the way. You and I are reminded that when somebody's hairs have turned gray and when somebody's body has gotten a little more feeble and tired and worn out and we wonder, I have lived for the Lord, I have been faithful to the Lord. Now what happens in my hour of need, in my hour of weakness, there's a God that's not going to. His people now. God has brought you safe thus far. He's the God that'll carry you home. There is nothing God enjoys more than the Bible even tells us, doesn't he? It tells us how he loves to clothe the grass of the field. It tells us that he, he loves to, to put the food in the mouth of a little raven, the raven, the dirtiest of birds in Bible times. And the God who loves to feed the birds and the God who loves to clothe the grass, he is the God who just gets a kick out of it. He just gets a charge out of making sure his people are taken care of. No sir. You say I stand at the crossroads And I don't know where it goes I don't know what it costs But I am living my life for the will of God Then you can be mighty certain There's a God in heaven who smiles And says The angels we're going to keep an eye on that one We're going to make some things happen for them Years ago in the state of Kansas, there was an old, old preacher named George Young. He's just a sweet old guy, and his wife was the only one in Kansas, probably nicer than he was. And George Young and his wife, they would go to humble, I mean humble little country churches. Sometimes there would be three, four people, and George Young would preach for them. Sometimes have meetings, and, and he just loved the Lord. He was a carpenter, and on the side he did some jobs. And I mean literally, and this is back in the day, he literally saved his nickels and his dimes. And one day when somebody gave him a small tract of land, George Young built a little house for himself and his wife. You and I might think it was more of an outhouse, but to George Young and his wife, it it may as well have been the Taj Mahal. It was move-in day and George Young and his wife stood in the doorway of that home with a big smile on their face. They began to sing praise God from whom all blessings flow. They were so thankful for what God had given them. Soon it was time to go to a little country church and preach for a few days and, and when they They were coming home, George Young and his wife. They they were talking how much excitement there was. They were going to have a few days in that little house. They didn't even know that while they were away, a neighbor who hated God and he hated the Youngs had torched their house and burned it to the ground. When they came home, there was nothing but ashes. And George Young said he raced ahead of his wife and he got on his knees. And The ashes, he said, were still warm as they fell through his fingers. Every photo, every keepsake, everything was gone. But you know, in the midst of the fire, the Lord gave him some words, and it was George Young who wrote it like this. In shady green pastures so rich and so sweet, God leads His dear children along. When the water's cool flow bathes the weary one's feet, God leads His dear children along. Sometimes it's the mount where the sun shines so bright, God leads His dear children along. But sometimes it's the valley in the darkest of night, God leads His dear children along. Though sorrows befall us and Satan Nepal, God leads his dear children along. Through grace we can conquer, defeat all the foe. God leads his dear children along so it's away from the mire and away from the clay. God leads his dear children along, away up in glory where eternity is day. God leads his dear children along, some through the water, some through the flood, some through the fire, but all through the blood. Some through great sorrow, that's when God gives the song in the night season and all the day long. You can just ask Ruth, because while Ruth's waking up in the morning saying, I need a bite to eat, I have no idea where it's coming from. There's a God in heaven that is more than delighted. Uh, Say, Ruth, I have watched you stand at the crossroads and invest your life in the will of God. Now there's a need, now there's a burden, now there's a hungry stomach, now there's something to take care of. Well then, Ruth, it's time for me to start making some things happen. And by the time you get to the end of Ruth chapter 4, all you can do is shake your head and say, My, the Lord is pretty good when it comes to making it happen. If Ruth can trust in her Heavenly Father, if the ravens can trust in the Heavenly Father, if the grass can trust the Heavenly Father, then you and I can trust Him as well. And when the God of the Bible says, Give me your life for my will. Show me somebody who does. I'll show you a God who makes it happen. Father in heaven, I ask and pray that tonight you do a work in our hearts, in the hearts of your people. And and Lord, I pray in this room, you'd find that man, that lady, that young person who'd be willing to say, I'll go wherever God wants. I'll do whatever God wants. My life for the will of God.